2: I'm writing to you about something that may come as a shock and will certainly feel like it's fallen out of the clear blue sky. My name is Danny Shapiro, and I'm a 54-year-old novelist, memoirist, wife, and mother of a 17-year-old son.
3: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Danny Shapiro talks about her surprising genetic inheritance.
2: I had always felt other in the Shapiro family because I looked so other.
3: Here's
0: Debbie. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that helped make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch, rethinking the look and feel of your brand, maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD, now for free with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Our genes have a story to tell, but it may not be the story we want to hear. A few years ago, on a lark, the novelist and memoirist Danny Shapiro had her DNA analyzed— by a genealogy service. One of the things she learned? Her father was not her biological father. Danny discovered she simply wasn't who she thought she was. Thus began her quest to uncover the secrets of her family and to reimagine her own story. You can read all about it in her new book, Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love. Danny Shapiro, welcome back to Design Matters.
2: Thanks, Debbie. It is so great to be here.
0: Danny, in preparing for our interview today, I not only read your remarkable new book, I also reread the transcript of our previous interview in 2014. And I was struck by the first question I asked you in that interview. I wanted to know if it was true that when you were two years old, you were the Kodak Christmas poster child. And of course, you told me you were. And at the time, the notion of a little Orthodox Jewish girl appearing in a Christmas ad seemed, well, unusual. (laughs) And it was, and it wasn't, as we'll discuss. Um, But I also asked you about something you had written in 1998 in your memoir, Slow Motion. You stated this. I spent my early life surrounded by silence, thinking my thoughts, dreaming my dreams, inventing a self out of thin air. I had no one to reflect this back to me. And Danny, in some ways, you start inheritance with this version of your younger self. And I'm wondering if you could read several excerpts over the course of this interview today, but if you could start with a portion of the introduction.
2: Of course. Amazing to hear that quote from Slow Motion. What it's, to say. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. It just gets amazinger and amazinger. Okay. When I was a girl, I would sneak down the hall late at night once my parents were asleep. I would lock myself in the bathroom, climb on the Formica counter, and get as close as possible to the mirror until I was nose to nose with my own reflection. This wasn't an exercise in the simple self-absorption of childhood. The stakes felt high. Who knows how long I kneeled there, staring into my own eyes. I was looking for something I couldn't possibly have articulated, but I always knew it when I saw it. If I waited long enough, my face would begin to morph I was 8, 10, 13. Cheeks, eyes, chin, and forehead. My features softened and shape-shifted until finally I was able to see another face, a different face, what seemed to me a truer face just beneath my own. Now it is early morning, and I'm in a small hotel bathroom 3,000 miles from home. I'm 54 years old, and it's been a long time since I've been that girl. But here I am again, staring and staring at my reflection. A stranger stares back at me. The coordinates I'm in San Francisco, Japantown to be precise, just off a long flight. The facts I'm a woman, a wife, a mother, a writer, a teacher. I'm a daughter. I blink. The stranger in the mirror blinks too. A daughter. Over the course of a single day and night, the familiar has vanished. Familiar, belonging to a family. On the other side of the thin wall, I hear my husband crack open a newspaper. The floor seems to sway, or perhaps it's my body trembling. I don't know what a nervous breakdown would feel like, but I wonder if I'm having one. I trace my fingers across the planes of my cheekbones, down my neck, across my clavicle, as if to be certain I still exist. I'm hit by a wave of dizziness and grip the bathroom counter. In the weeks and months to come, I will become well acquainted with this sensation. It will come over me on street corners and curbs, airports, train stations. I'll take it as a sign to slow down, to take a breath, feel the fact of my own body. You're still you, I tell myself,
0: again and again and again. Danny, what had you just found out, and how did you discover it? I had just
2: found out that my father, um, who I had adored and who had died when I was 23 years old, and who i had spent much of my life trying to piece together, back together again in some way through my writing, book after book after book, I had just found out that my father had not been my biological father. And the way that I found that out was pretty much pure accident. Um, my husband was interested in doing one of those commercial DNA tests, and he asked me casually if I wanted to do one too, and the prices had just dipped below 100 bucks, And I'm like, sure. It wasn't, I, there was very little curiosity. I just. I'm haunted by the fact that I could easily have said no. But I said yes, and then when my results came back, They told a very different story than the one that I had absolutely known, more than believed, known, never had any reason to question for 54 years.
0: Now, you found this out by comparing the results to your half-sister, who was your father's daughter from a previous marriage, someone that you had not particularly been close to. What happened was that when my results came back,
2: from Ancestry.com, the, the commercial testing place that I that I used. First of all, they showed a percentage at my ethnicity, like what made me up, that didn't really make any sense. You were 52% Ashkenazi, right? 52% Eastern European Ashkenazi, whereas I would have imagined that I would have
0: been close to 100%. Right, both I'm 98 point something percent.
2: Right, right. Well, that's what you would expect. Both of your parents are Eastern European Ashkenazi, then you're going to be... You know and my, my husband, who's both of his parents are Eastern European Ashkenazi, when his results came back, he was at eighty-eight percent. I mean it was pretty high. Mm, 52... Somebody somebody <laughs> went out of the tribe. <laughs> Something happened somewhere along the way. But when I first saw the fifty two percent, I actually thought maybe that's what it's like. Maybe, you know, there's a long history of, you know, diaspora and pogroms, and maybe this is just what it is to be Jewish, is to you know, maybe we're all half Jewish. But then A couple of things happened, and one was that a first cousin appeared on my page on Ancestry.com, and that first cousin was a total stranger. A period, T period. A period, T period. Just initials, and it was a blue icon. They do blue for boys and pink for girls. That's all I knew. I knew that it was a man, and I I saw these initials, and still... I've got to tell you, Debbie, nothing about this really raised alarm bells for me. Such was my absolute certainty that I was who I had always thought I was. So it it was my husband who suggested that I reach out to my half-sister. And I had remembered that she had done her own genetic testing. So I did. And she sent me her kit number, and there's a site where you can actually compare two DNA files side by side to see what the relationship is. And as I write in the book, it took a fraction of a second. It took something like 0.4538 eighths of a second for the results to come back in. And the
0: results showed that we were not related. Your father died in a car accident when you were 23, as you mentioned, and your half-sister was 38 Your mother had died many years ago as well. You were all part of a large Orthodox Jewish family. Your grandfather was a founder of the Lincoln Square Synagogue, one of the country's most respected Orthodox institutions. Your uncle had been president of the Orthodox Union. Your grandparents had been pillars of the observant Jewish community, both in America and in Israel. Though you're not a religious person now, you, like me, have a strong spiritual connection to our heritage. And in less than, as you said, one fraction of a second, there would now and forever be a before. And you describe it in the book, and I'm wondering if you can read that section as well. I woke up
2: one morning, and life was as I had always known it to be there were certain things I thought I could count on. I looked at my hand, for example, and I knew it was my hand. My foot was my foot. My face, my face. My history, my history. After all, it's impossible to know the future, but we can be reasonably sure about the past. By the time I went to bed that night, my entire history, the life I had lived, had crumbled beneath me like the buried ruins
0: of a long-forgotten city. Danny, you wrote a book before Inheritance, before you knew anything about your DNA, titled Hourglass, which is a memoir about time, memory, and marriage. In it, you describe seeing a photograph of yourself as a child on a vacation with your parents. And in Hourglass, you write... On a glistening white beach, I am a little girl beaming with unbridled joy on the lap of her father, a deeply tanned young man who looks to be at home in the world. I stare at the photo of my beautiful lost father and the unselfconscious child whose whole self presses against him with the ease of knowing how absolutely she is loved. What is it like now? Rereading your work and knowing that what you knew to be true then is different now. I have so many thoughts about that.
2: First, one of the most stunning things to me about the last couple of years, as I have sort of pieced my way bit by bit through this discovery, which really has to do with reordering my history, is how much I knew in a way, without knowing, right? And my work is just littered
0: with clues. It really is. It's crazy <laughs> I have to say. I, I, I have, you're a memoirist, yeah. so this is really a, a, an extraordinary rethreading. Yeah, and, and there's and there's the
2: information is there. It's like my unconscious. My first novel, which has been out of print for years, and I don't think you've read it, and no one should really read it. It was just I was learning how to write kind of in public. But I went back and looked at it, and there is this moment in the first chapter where the main character was a very autobiographical novel. So the Danny character, whose name was Lucy Greenberg, Lucy's dad is putting her to bed, and instead of telling her fairy tales, he tells her stories of the Greenberg family history. And in the novel, I use a story that my father, or maybe my aunt, had told me about their childhood. And in the story, it's right before Passover, and they are going to um, deliver meals to poor Jews around New York City. And they go to deliver a meal to a rabbi who's fallen on hard times. And Lucy's father gets out of the car and races over to the rabbi's doorstep to leave the food. And the rabbi opens the door. And Lucy's father is very upset that the rabbi's opened the door because it's not a mitzvah. It's not a good deed if you're seen doing it. So Lucy's father turns around and says, you, you know, you shouldn't have seen me. And, and, and the rabbi says, who are you? I, wait, I, I know who you are. I would know that face anywhere. You're a Greenberg. And Lucy's father puts her to bed And she lies there in the dark and she thinks, that's how I wish that I would be known. I would like to be known by my face wherever I go in the world. I would like people to be able to point to me and say, there goes a Greenberg. Wow. I wrote that novel when I was 26, 27 years old. I knew on some level that was inaccessible to me. And I was trying to puzzle it through all my life. So to go back to your question, I now look at that photograph with layers and layers of feeling. In in one way, I feel that absolutely my father absolutely adored me, and that was one of the saving graces of my life, in a life that I might not otherwise have, have survived. I also spent a lot of time as a writer trying to understand his sadness, because one of the things that's remarkable about that photograph was that he really was so joyful, that it was a joyful photograph. There's not a lot of those which is why I think it stayed with me. But one of the things that I've done in my life as a writer has been to try to understand and unpack the sources of his sorrow. And one of the more painful and complicated aspects of this discovery was to realize that I think his inability to have his own biological child with my mother was a source of that sorrow, knowing, assuming that he knew, knowing that I wasn't his biological child, I think was a piece of, you know, what's interesting about it is that it reorders all of the things that I thought about both of my parents, all of the narratives I supplied about both of them. That's all still true. It just wasn't the whole truth.
0: Do you think that if he did know that he was sad, not because you weren't his biological daughter, but because of this secret between you that you he wasn't allowed to tell you or that you weren't supposed to know, as if there was something that would dilute the profundity of your love, which is clearly, and through all of your memoirs, your the relationship you had with your father was nothing short of profound, the fact that you are not his biological daughter doesn't change the profundity of that love. Right. And so I was thinking as I was reading the book and knowing from, from your previous books the relationship that you've had with him, was that sadness having to bear this lie? I think
2: certainly that the, uh, the sadness was in part in trying to kind of stuff that secret so far away that it didn't even exist anymore— But secrets don't really behave. No, they don't. They they don't fall in line when you try to shove them away. And I think, too, that there was shame and trauma surrounding um, the way that my parents conceived me and that that carried over. So there, there was something that was unsaid. I don't think he laid awake at night and thought... I wonder whether Danny should know or whether I should tell her or, we're, or even we're doing a wrong thing by not telling her. I don't think so. But I think it acted upon him in, in different ways. I also think that he was a religious Jew and there is that all-important, back to mitzvahs, the all-important be fruitful and multiply. And I think that there was something in there for him that he, that he felt that he would have felt because he would have been conditioned to feel it. I don't think it affected his love for me one iota, but I do feel
0: that it was a source of great complexity for him. And we're talking about a time in our history and our culture where these practices were seen quite differently and there was some shame involved. And I remember, you know, as a little girl... Uh, My parents got divorced when I was in, I want to say, fourth grade, maybe. And I was teased about it. That was something shameful. And there was a girl in my class that was also adopted. And she was teased for that. I mean, kids can be really cruel. And, And, you know, there was something wrong with us because of this. And so at that time, I could see internalizing some shame at not being able to conceive a child.
2: Well, and the solitary nature of it. Uh, I mean, I was conceived in 1961, and the world around reproductive medicine was hidden. It was lawless. It was all secret, and parents were told, go home and pretend it never happened, right. never speak of this again. It was extremely complex, and, and I think all of the societal Norms around it. Um, you know, in my research, uh, I mean, I read everything that there was to read while I was writing *Inheritance*, and there was a, I believe, a Time magazine cover, and the cover line was "Artificial Bastards?" Question mark. And also, *Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf?* Edward Albee's play was opening on Broadway that year, and it depicted a childless couple you know, as a couple of people who were just monstrous Misfits to each and other. and outlaws,
0: yes. outcasts. Right. I mean, the whole notion of identity back then was so misunderstood. I know you saw the recent documentary Three Identical Strangers about three identical brothers who were separated at birth and studied in an effort to understand nature versus nurture, which now is just even beyond cruel. It's It's abuse. Um, and it seems that the 1960s through the 1980s were times of truly unimaginable and unethical practices that are only really coming out now.
2: Well, the, the child was the goal, and therefore the child was an object. It was essential that parents and doctors and everyone involved in the process not think beyond the success of a birth and giving these parents a child. And I mean, on the one hand, all of that is great. It's wonderful for parents who want to have a child to be able to have a child, but it moved away from um, any thought to what it would mean to strip a child of her identity.
0: And you found out, again, before the actual DNA, some of the breadcrumbs that you are able to go back and piece together in crafting what could have happened because both of your parents were dead and the only piece of information you had was a period t period but after the second anniversary of your dad's death you bring your mother to one of your readings uh after one of your books had been published and casually introduce her to a friend of yours who happened to come from philadelphia she then very nonchalantly tells you both that oh danny was conceived in philadelphia which you had never heard before so so what happened at that point Well,
2: I think back now, and I'm so incredibly thankful that that conversation took place because otherwise I
0: would have been left with the most massive mystery. I mean, talk about if that hadn't happened, then that happened. I mean, it's just one series of serendipitous accidents that led you to being able to understand your history. That is right. That
2: is right. I mean, I, I think of it almost as a kind of fate or karma or I don't know what because it was so unlikely that I would ever have been able to piece all this together Yeah. So I was in graduate school at Sarah Lawrence. It was the second anniversary of my father's death. And I remember that because I didn't want my mother to be alone that night. Um, And so I brought her with me to Sarah Lawrence and I introduced her to my friend, Rachel. And Rachel told my mother she was from Philadelphia. My mother said that I was conceived in Philadelphia. And I said, Mom, what are you talking about? I've never heard that. Like Love Shack? Like, like, (laughs) Was there a nice hotel? you went away for the weekend. And And she said, oh, you don't want to know. It's not a pretty story, which kind of tells you everything you need to know about my mother. But later that night, I was driving her home back to New York City. And I said, Mom, you cannot just say that about my conception. what, what What happened? So she told me that my father and she had had trouble conceiving me and that they went to an institute, that was the word she used, in Philadelphia, where there was a world-famous doctor who helped them with this procedure. And I said, well, what was the procedure? And she said, artificial insemination. And so I was driving along thinking, well, that is really weird. That is a weird thing to find out about yourself is that you were conceived by artificial insemination. But In your 20s? But it was very clear to me from what my mother was saying that it was my father's sperm that was used. She talked about calling my father on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where my father worked as a trader, and that he would come racing down to Philadelphia when they would pinpoint the moment where she was ovulating and they would do the procedure. She was very clear about that.
0: Back then, it was always assumed that infertility was caused by the woman, uh, the wife, not the husband. But the doctor that your mother had found looked at sperm specimens for low motility and poor morphology and that is how your mother found him. And I find it so interesting how sexist the reproductive health care was back then.
2: Oh, this, this doctor, or scientist rather, uh, was reviled in the medical community because he studied male infertility. In the world at that time, it was always the woman. And I actually believe that my parents or- originally went to him not because they suspected that my father had slow sperm, but because he was meant to be, you know, good at helping couples have babies. And he would have, as a matter of course, then checked my father. I'm, I'm pretty sure that they would have gone thinking it, it was my mother. She was older, very much older in those days. I mean, she was 37, 38, 39 years old. She was almost 40 when she had me. So that's old in 1961. And... Um, He would have looked at my father's sperm under a microscope. Very simple procedure to do. And he would have seen that there was, like, no way that this couple was going to have their own baby.
0: So that's what I suspect happened. And at the time, infertility institutions would mix sperm. That was one of the stranger... You found that out from your half-sister initially,
2: Right. right? Right. So after I dropped my mother off that night... Back in 1988, I went home and I called my half-sister. I wasn't disturbed. I just was like, I was puzzled, wanted to talk to somebody about it who might know something more than I did. And I mostly was curious about whether my half-sister remembered or knew that my parents had had trouble conceiving me. And my half-sister, who is a psychoanalyst, it should be noted, said to me, yeah, I kind of had, had a sense that they were having trouble conceiving you You know, I remember opening the refrigerator and seeing, you know, glasses of, you know, containers of urine in there. She remembered that. She said, but, you know, you really want to, you might, you might want to look into this further um, because there was a practice back in those days of mixing the husband's sperm with donor's sperm. And (laughs) and at the time, the way that I received that, because my half-sister and I did have a kind of complicated relationship and I really did think she kind of wished that I had never been born I remember like joking around with friends of mine and just say like analyze that I mean does she actually hear what she's saying to me what she's saying to me is dad's all mine he's not yours it was I felt like it was a fantasy or a wish of hers that she was expressing didn't take it all that seriously but it registered and so I don't remember exactly how long later but not more than a couple of days I was with my mother again, and I brought it up, and I said, Mom, I heard that there was a practice back in those days of mixing sperm. Is that possible? And what did she say? She didn't blink. I mean, if you say mixed sperm, mixing sperm, it is such a crazy idea that if you've never heard it before... You register it. Oh, my eyes popped out of my head
0: when I was reading. (laughs) I'm like, I didn't, what? What? Exactly.
2: I mean, you don't just take that, you know, sort of as a matter of course. She did. She was completely expressionless. Her expression did not change. And she didn't miss a beat. And she said, absolutely not. Can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine that your father ever would have agreed to such a thing? It would have meant that he wouldn't have known that his child was Jewish. Which, later, my husband, who spent many years as an investigative journalist and, you know, these pieces of the puzzle kept on kind of falling into place for us. At one point, my husband said, first of all, she didn't answer your question. She asked another question. Second of all, she didn't say, wouldn't know that his child was his.
0: Right. And third of all you're Jewish, if the egg is Jewish, and if your mother's Jewish, you're Jewish. It doesn't matter who the husband is or who the father is. Right. Or who the sperm belongs to, frankly.
2: Right. In terms of Jewish law. Yeah. We both
0: were brought up orthodox. That is something you are taught from the beginning. Right. You describe how for so long, you, despite not knowing any of this, you had felt this certain kind of otherness and You read a little bit about that in in the introduction and a longing that you experienced up until you met your husband, Michael, and had your son, Jacob. And you described the longing as vast, wide, and was a constant interior ache. In the subsequent research you did for your book with donor-conceived people, particularly those whose origins were not disclosed to them, who described the longing in the same way. And you said that they have a sense of being trapped on the other side of an invisible wall, separate, alone, cut off, and worst of all, not knowing why. Aside from the obvious, is there a psychological reason for this? Is there some sort of underlying way of knowing about ourselves that you think is evident here?
2: In adoption literature, there is this term that I came across that I think applies here as well which is genealogical bewilderment and that sense of things that we we take for granted if we believe that we are a part of a biological family we take for granted that we have mannerisms or look alike or traits skip generations and all and certainly there are parents and children who don't look you know similar to each other you wouldn't pick them you know out of a out of a lineup but there is something that's there in the biology that's real. And if it's not there, and it's unknown that it's not there, which is really an important point, sort of essential, it's not that it's not there, it's that it's not known that it's not there. Hmm. And so the child grows up, I mean, I, uh, grew up turning that feeling of otherness shame, confusion, being on the other side of that wall, not fitting in, not belonging against myself because I had no reason to feel that way as far as I knew. I didn't understand why I was in this kind of fog of pain and why I felt other. I I certainly wouldn't have had any language for that, but it completely formed my childhood and my life even as a young woman, I
0: think. Your sense of this was so strong, you found yourself snooping through your parents' things over and over when they weren't home. What do you think you were looking for?
2: Well, that's the thing, is that I didn't know what I was looking for, but I knew that there was something that I, I didn't... You needed to find. I, needed, I, need, <laughs> I, was, I was compelled
0: by the sense that there was something that I needed to find, which, of course, I never found. You describe what happens next and I'm wondering if you could read a little bit about what you considered. What next?
2: I couldn't imagine what might come next. I am a spinner of narratives, a teller of tales. I have spent my life attempting to make meaning out of random events, to shape stories out of an accretion of senseless, chaotic detail. As a writer and a teacher of writing, this is what I do. What if, I might begin to suggest to a student, how about, but I have been dealing within the confines of a known world. I am not a fantasist. I have never been particularly drawn to mysteries of the it" variety nor sci-fi. A hint of magic realism interests me, but there are limits to my suspension of disbelief. What never fails to draw me in, however, are secrets. Secrets within families. Secrets we keep out of shame or self-protectiveness or denial Secrets and their corrosive power.
0: Secrets we keep from one another in the name of love. Danny, I find it so incredibly compelling how so much of your work, of your career, centers on secrets. And you discover that a secret is now the centerpiece of your life. I mean, talk about hitting the jackpot for a memoirist, (laughs) not to be flip in any way, Um, but there is some incredible irony to the fact that this happened to someone that has spent most of her adult life examining what it means to be alive.
2: Well, you know, it's irony, but it's also inevitability. Like, in terms of the language of this, you know, from very early on, when I would say this happened to me, I realized that's not true. It happened before I was born. I discovered it. And so it was always forming me. I mean, my friend Hannah Tinty, wonderful novelist, when I told her, I, I was sitting with her one evening having a drink, and I told her fairly early on what was going on. And she burst out laughing, which was just about the most wonderful response that I could have had. And then she wrote to me the next morning, and she said, you know, I was walking my dog, and I was thinking about your story, and I thought, she's been in training for this, her whole life. And then I heard the theme music from Rocky kind of going through my head, (laughs) which, by the way, takes place in Philadelphia. Right. But really, it had this absolute inevitability to it once it started to unfold. Did
0: you ever have any doubts about writing about it?
2: No, Debbie. I mean, I started jotting down notes almost instantly. The feeling initially was... I need to remember how I'm feeling, and I'm in so much shock that I'm not sure that I will remember what I'm feeling, and I want a record of this. And then the other sense that I had very early on was that anybody who might know anything about this was going to be very old, that I was dealing with contemporaries of my parents or contemporaries of the doctor at the institute or contemporaries of anyone who was involved in reproductive medicine in the early 1960s or the late 1950s, they were going to be in their late 80s or in their 90s. And my husband and I started having this joke between us where I wouldn't want to pick up the phone and call someone because I don't like doing that, especially if they don't want to hear from me or I think they might not want to hear from me. And my husband would just say, he may be dead by Friday. (laughs) (laughs) And I would pick up the phone because my desire to know
0: was greater than my fear. You articulate what it is like to be in shock in a very powerful way. You stated that this type of shock is something you can't know until you experienced a few of them. And you quote Nabokov from Speak Memory and ask, how do you examine a deluded mind when one's only resource is a deluded mind? Did you have the sense as you were going into this investigation that not only might you not find the information that you were looking for, but the information that you might find might not be the right
2: information. Oh, yeah, from very early on, the sense of, is it going to be possible to learn anything? I I didn't want to construct a new false narrative. And as a writer, I had kind of broken up with narrative in my last couple of books. Devotion and Still Writing and Hourglass are all nonlinear narratives. And then suddenly there was this story
0: that was just a story with a capital S. Well, it's sort of a thriller. I mean, I was reading it and couldn't put it down because I needed to know what was going to happen next.
2: (laughs) I love that. Um, I learned something interesting about writing and maybe about human nature in general when I started writing because Inheritance is my 10th book. And I began working on it from the very center of this shocked, traumatized place. And I thought, as I was working away, that I was kind of on track and writing the story as it was unfolding. And then I had to put the manuscript down at, after I had about 200 pages because Hourglass was coming out and I needed to go on book tour. And so I didn't look at Inheritance for a couple of months. And when I came back home and I picked it up again and I started reading it again, my heart sank. Why? Because it wasn't good. It wasn't good. I threw it all away. Are you kidding? Oh, I'm not. I started over again. And the realization was, I had written from the present moment before. Uh, I kind of made a specialty of it, learning how to kind of use my life as a laboratory to explore, whether explore marriage or explore a spiritual crisis or explore the creative process, but those were not traumatic events. And this was writing from trauma. And what I realized, I think poets can. I think that only poets can write directly from trauma. And Why is that? Because so there's a moment in in the book where I quote Bessel van der. Kolk, I was going to say I right?
0: had a feeling this right. was going to
2: come. The great the great psychiatrist
0: and researcher um, about trauma. Nobody understands early childhood trauma like he does. Yeah. Or trauma just in general.
2: Yeah, it's true. Bessel said it is the nature of trauma that it doesn't allow a story to be told. It's why I think after a trauma people try to tell the story again and again and again and again and again because they're trying to form it into something, control it, and create something that will be sort of solid and have edges. But trauma itself doesn't work that way. And so, also, in my experience, trauma comes back to the same questions over and over and over again. So, for me, the question, what did my mother know? What did my father know? It came back to the same place each time without the question deepening or developing or changing, or becoming sharper in some way. And that doesn't make good literature. So I had to find the place from which to tell the story that was a half a step away from the trauma. And I reread Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking, Mm. and I realized that she was telling the story of her husband's death and her grief from about six months beyond the moment of his death. And it allowed her to have a fulcrum from which she could move toward that moment, move away from it, bring in philosophy and journalism and theory and thinking that would be impossible
0: for the traumatized mind to do. She had actually, and I can see, there's there's a similar way of not letting yourselves off the hook in both books, where you're very critical of your own limitations as you're going through this. And critical is probably not the right word, and limitations isn't probably the right word. But there's a a self-awareness that is necessary for a story like this, I think, to feel manageable.
2: Yeah. I mean, the way I think of it is showing the seams, like showing the seams of the story as the story is being made. And that was something that I was conscious of doing, because once I finally... Found it. And it was the moment that you had me read at the beginning of our conversation. That's when I found it. The many, many moments of my childhood of staring at my own face in the mirror and realizing all of a sudden, oh, that's what I was doing. That's what I was doing. I was looking for, I was look. my face made no sense. So I was looking for like what was behind it, even though I couldn't have told you that.
0: You initially felt that your paternal grandparents and your aunts and your uncles and cousins were floating away from you like dozens of life rafts, as you put it. Did you feel that they wouldn't accept you anymore or that they wouldn't love you? Were you worried that they might not think you were Jewish? And then that would be in in very orthodox Jewish families, being Jewish is of utmost importance.
2: Mm -hmm. Part of it was more metaphysical than that because most of them were gone. And it was my relationship to them as my ancestors that I realized had been so important to me. There was some way in which coming from that family made me feel that I was tethered to the earth. They were grounding for me. Very much magical thinking, um, but a sense of safety in being from this family. And I had always felt other in the Shapiro family because I looked so other. And also because my mother was not ever really... They didn't accept her. She didn't accept them. It was not a close relationship, and I was her daughter. And so it wasn't so much that I felt anybody was going to turn their back on me. There certainly was a moment when I went to see my father's 93-year-old sister because Is I decided... Is that Shirley? That's Shirley. Yeah. Um, I decided to tell her what I had discovered, mostly... Because I thought maybe she knew something and I wanted to know if she knew. Um, And that was a very, very hard thing to tell her. And she was remarkably loving. I mean, it was like one of the most loving afternoons, one of the most loving encounters I've ever experienced. That was
0: the first time I cried in (sighs) in reading the book. I cried three times through Mm -hmm. this book and that was the first You and your husband, Michael, go on a fact-finding mission through Ancestry.com and ultimately through this first cousin, A period, T period, are able to figure out who your biological father might be. It took you 36 hours to find your biological father. Some people spend decades. It took you 36 hours to find your biological father and his email address. You almost instantly write him a letter despite urging from experts that there was a right way and a wrong way to go about doing something like this. But you write about how you weren't feeling careful or methodical. In fact, you were feeling quite the opposite. You describe yourself as feeling wild and reckless, and you sent an email right away. Can you read it for us?
2: There was just this, I felt, it was in that moment, about a kind of moving forward for me, a momentum. Um, I was in so much pain about discovering that my dad wasn't my biological father and that I had been, like, betrayed and lied to for my entire life that for a while there, everything that I did was about taking action. If I was taking action, then I felt that I might survive this. Um, Dear Dr. Walden, I'm writing to you about something that may come as a shock and will certainly feel like it's fallen out of the clear blue sky. My name is Danny Shapiro, and I'm a 54-year-old novelist, memoirist, wife, and mother of a 17-year-old son. I live in Litchfield County, Connecticut. I recently took a DNA test as nothing more than a lark. I have always believed my parents to be my biological parents. But now I have reason to believe that you may be my biological father. I won't write more unless, A, this makes sense to you, and B, you're willing to communicate with me about it. I so hope you're willing.
0: And he didn't write back. And then you wrote again. This time he responded. You had a few volleys back and forth, and you asked if the two of you could meet. Tell us what happened then.
2: Initially, he wrote back. He's a very thoughtful person. And I also want to say that by answering me initially, he didn't have to do that. He could have ghosted me. He could have lied to me. Well, he deleted it first. I, I later found out that he deleted my first email like it was a hot potato in his inbox. And it was when I wrote to him a second time that he fished it out. And he, he lives on the other side of the country. I told him that I would be happy to fly to the Pacific Northwest for a cup of coffee. Uh, that I just wanted to have the experience of... Meeting my biological father. And he initially wrote saying, I need some time to process your request. And I'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. He has been married for 50 years. He has three children, very close knit family. And I knew that he was processing a lot of this with his family. His wife of 50 years had never known that he had been a sperm donor when he was a young medical student. And, um, After a couple of weeks, I received a letter from him, and it was a really hard letter. It didn't sound like the rest of his communication to me. And in it, he pretty much said, I had been given a a guarantee of anonymity by the institute where I donated uh, as a 22-year-old medical student. And, you know, you have been able to learn a little bit about me, and I've been able to learn a little bit about you, and that's where we're going to leave it. And this is going to be my final communication. How did you feel, Danny? I felt some combination of rage and devastation. The rage, I think, came from a sense of powerlessness. I felt like, is this it? And, you know, up until that point, I had felt that if I could know a couple of things for sure, that I would be okay. Like what? Medical history. And knowing where I came from. And I had both of those things. But I still felt that I wanted I wanted more. I wanted to know, I wanted the reality of it to settle in. And I didn't know how to make that happen because to spend 54 years in one story, in one narrative, this is my mother, this is my father, this is who I am, this is where I come from, and then to have that unraveled and not be able to put that back together again, it felt, be- it felt important to me. I think I would have survived, but it felt important to me. And the, the anger, I think, came from a place of your relying on the decades-old promises of a defunct institution as your moral high ground here. Uh, that just felt like, really, we are, we're, we're kind of in this together. We're all in this together. The, uh, the idea of having responsibility for this thing that, in fact, did happen. There are very few things in life that you can't take back, and one of them is having a child.
3: Yeah. It's even,
2: if it's, even if it's as, as a sperm donor and you, and you had this idea that you were never going to
0: know anything about any possible biological children. And then he changed his mind. I was struck by the notion that your husband Michael had been certain all along that he would change his mind. Where did that sense come from in Michael? Michael's sense
2: was that more would be revealed. I don't know that he actually felt that Ben would change his mind. I think he thought there might be other half-siblings, that more, more would happen. I actually felt somewhere within me a sense that he would change his mind, which is why I did not write back to him. I did not respond. I did not say, I'm sorry, or will you reconsider, or I understand. That
0: took a lot of (laughs) self-control. I did. Bravo.
2: I did this thing that I've never done before in my life about anything, which is uh, that evening I opened a file on my computer that I titled Imaginary Responses, and I just started writing responses to him whenever I felt like it, that I knew I would never send, but I needed to get off my, my chest. But there was a sense that his his voice in that last letter didn't feel like his true voice. And it's a very bizarre thing to say that about someone who's a perfect stranger. And yet I felt that on some level, I knew him, which is, again, very a very strange feeling, but I did feel it. And I thought,
0: that he might come around. The sections of inheritance that recount your meaning, your biological father and his wife and their family, are beautiful and heartbreaking. And you write in Inheritance about how this experience resulted in you becoming a student of trauma, and you write that it is the nature of trauma that, when left untreated, it deepens over time. And you see, this particular trauma is, in many ways, your inheritance. You inherited this trauma. How your parents' tortured pact of secrecy was as much a part of you as the genes that you inherited. How do you feel about that now? A friend of mine, the writer Elizabeth Lesser,
2: said to me early on uh, in this journey of mine, when you get to the other side of this, you will be free. And at the time I thought, well, let's just see if I'm going to get to the other side of this. But I knew that there was truth in what she was saying. And I think that what I feel more often than not these days is that there's freedom in all of this knowledge that I now have about what formed me, you know, that I spent my whole life not having. And so, or there was another moment, and I write about it in in Inheritance, where a rabbi friend says to me, Can you accept the two tributaries? Can you accept your father and Ben Walden as, you know, you're coming from both of these men, which is I is the truth. That's the, the truth of the matter, is that I am someone who was made of three people. My mother and the father who raised me, and the biological father who uh you know provided my being able to be here but the the nature and the nurture of all of that is what what made me me and so i inherited the trauma but i also inherited a pretty amazing constitution from my biological father actually from he comes from just this line of Constitutionally, very, very solid people. I never understood why I was so constitutionally, uh, you know, in great shape. It didn't make any sense given the parents that I came from, and yet there it was. And that's nature. And then the nurture of it, as we were talking about earlier, was this father who who loved me and was and was had a very, very loving,
0: very capacious heart. You write about how trauma and gratitude aren't mutually exclusive. How are they intertwined? I think the moment that
2: you're referring to is that sometimes what happens, I think both with adoptees and with people who discover that they're donor-conceived is a sense that, well, you should just be grateful that you're you're here, aren't you? You're here. It's all, you know, you got good genes, you had a good life, it's all good, and that is true, but it's not the only truth. And I think... If I can generalize, I think in this country especially, one of the things that we do is we want to just kind of define and have our emotional lives be, you know, especially when it comes to complex questions, be one way. So grateful. Hashtag grateful. Yay!
0: (laughs) (laughs) If only everything was just that dimensional, right? And so
2: the idea that I can feel gratitude, immense gratitude, I feel that this is miraculous, actually. I feel now that it's like my superpower, that I have, you know, at this point in my life, hopefully with a, a bunch more life left to live, this knowledge and awareness and desire to understand more about the human condition and a kind of have gone to the front of the human condition in certain ways, And 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 I'm an artist, so I get to explore that, and that's thrilling to me. It's almost like it doesn't even matter that it's my story. It's just a great story. But at the same time, it's more complicated than that. And it always will be. And that dizziness that I described at, at the beginning, I still feel that. I felt it walking here today. Just like all of a sudden, like, whoa. The, that expression, the rug, the rug gets pulled out from under me, we use that expression all the time. But that's actually what happened. Mm. There was kind yeah. of a groundlessness to that. And I am... At my best, when I just embrace the
0: groundlessness. You said that your notions of certainty have changed. In what way?
2: Well, I guess it goes back to narrative. I just wrote a book in which, you know, in the end, I will never have all the answers. You know, early in the story, an an elderly rabbi that I went to talk with who knew my family said to me, well, what story would ease your heart Mm -hmm. the most? And I said, the true one and i was still at a point where i thought i'm going to there's going to be a box with a lock and i'm going to open it and there're going to be papers in there or there's going to be somebody who says to me this is what your mother told me or this is what your father told me this is how it happened i'm not going to get to have that so the only way i think to contend with that is to embrace that sense of uncertainty and also the awareness that we all really are living in that place. Um, I just got to have a kind of a more of a good hard look at it than many people do.
0: You state that it is a measure of true adulthood that we are able to imagine our parents as the people they may have been before us. How do you see your parents now?
2: This has given me significantly more empathy for my parents even as I have found that their withholding the truth from me was, you know, it's a bitter pill to swallow. However, imagining, it's, I think imagining our parents as who they were before us is something that we don't tend to do. Children of parents, however, however old we are, are pretty sort of, you know, solipsistic in, in that experience. Your mother's your mother, your father's your father. That's who they are to you. They're not people other than that. And I really had to imagine my parents and their their struggle and their desperation and their fear and their love for each other, I think, at, at the beginning, and their willingness to do anything, whatever it took, to have a baby. I've thought a lot about the fact that they didn't choose to adopt and... I think my mother really, really, really wanted to be pregnant. She wanted to have that experience. She wanted to give birth. And I think my father got on board for that, even though it was really a very complicated and very hard thing to do at the time. And so thinking about them, you know, several times in the book, I imagine them as who they were before me. And in the writing, that was some of the most... Uh, in a way, lovely kind of parts of writing it was thinking about getting as close as I possibly could using my imagination and my memory and my sense of them to who they were when they walked into that institute
0: in Philadelphia and what got them there. Danny, I have one last question for you, and then I'm hoping you'll read one more short passage for us. My question is this. You ask yourself this question several times in the book. Who was I without my history? Who was I without my history? What did you discover? I think that what I meant
2: at that point was the history that I had always known. So when I look at photographs of my childhood, you know, we we talked earlier about that photograph of my, my dad and me, or if I look at a picture of my mother and my father and me, or if I look at a picture of myself as a little girl, and it should be noted... I look almost exactly like my biological father. There's this sense of having to reorder it, right? And yet at the same time, there is a freedom in being able to sit or stand in that groundlessness of, in a way, it's like my history up until June 30th of 2016 was sealed on that day and it became everything that I had understood about myself up until that point and that became like a sealed pod and for a while I think what I felt was that if I could if I could draw it I would have envisioned myself as sort of like floating in the ether outside of that pod and I don't feel that way now I feel like I'm starting to build a new history you know, that that has its own ground. Um, And within that, there has to be uh, a willingness to live in uncertainty, to live in not knowing, and to make meaning out of all that, which is everything that I've tried to do my whole life and just what I'm continuing to do now. Will
0: you read one last passage for us?
2: But then I was born, and whatever sequelae there might have been to the unorthodox methods surrounding my conception, vanished into the ether of magical thinking. If it wasn't thought, it wasn't so. If it wasn't spoken, it hadn't happened. Except that secrets, particularly the most deeply held ones, have a way of leeching into everything surrounding them. A psychoanalytic phrase, the unthought known, became my instrument of illumination as I poked and prodded at my history with my parents. The psychoanalyst who coined it, Christopher Bolas, writes, There is in each of us a fundamental split between what we think we know and what
0: we know but will never be able to sink. Danny Shapiro, thank you so much for sharing so much of your stories with us. And thank you for joining us today on Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. Such a pleasure. Danny's new book is titled Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love. For more information about Danny, you can go to www.dannyshapiro.com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
3: For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie slash millman. That's d.rip slash debbie dash millman and if you really like this podcast please write a review in the itunes store and link to the podcast on social media design matters is produced by curtis fox productions the show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the school of visual arts masters in branding program in new york city the editor-in-chief of design matters media is zachary pettit and the art director is emily wyland Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.